you're revealing something about yourself to the whole world that is very intimate when I think when you're an artist. And I have huge respect for that courage. And I felt like it'd be really interesting to get to know artists, form communities, help them get feedback from each other like they would be in art school again and help them get, be a market maker, explain what the market wants, see what they want to do and somehow put them together for those who wanted to earn money. And it really was rooted in this family experience of saying, I need to help, I need to help them figure out how they can actually bring their vision to market. How can I help them earn a living? That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Miriam Nafisi is the founder and co-CEO at Minted, a serial entrepreneur who founded Minted in 2007. As a pioneer of the creator economy, Miriam created a community of independent artists and designers and a crowdsourcing process that includes design competitions to consistently discover the best designers and the hottest trends in the world. Designers submit their work from all over the globe, and Minted's community votes to tell the company what to sell. Minted sells the winning designs to customers. Miriam has immersed herself in Minted's talented community of independent artists who inspire her every day. She has pioneered consumer internet models since 1998, where she previously co-founded the first online cosmetics retailer, Eve.com, which was sold for over $100 million. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. Support for Entrepreneur is brought to you by Upwork, where you can build the team that will build your business. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today so your business can succeed tomorrow. Find talent at home or from 180 countries around the world so you can hire the right talent for whatever your business needs. Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at www.upwork.com. In our conversation, I had to start because I wanted to know a bit more about where she grew up. Supposedly, I had heard she grew up in six different countries. I had to ask if that was indeed true. That is true. Let's see, Kuwait, Lebanon, Tanzania, Iran, Egypt, and the US. So yes, my dad was with the United Nations as a development economist, mostly working on agriculture and was assigned all over the place. And that's what took us around the world. What was that like for you and, and how old were you? And, and when was it that I guess you finally moved to the United States? I think that uh, they are countries that I probably would not have gone to as a tourist. So I think it, I think <laughs> really like, I, I'm not sure I'm as adventurous as my parents are, to be honest. Um, I, so I, I doubt that I would have gone and chosen to go there. It was uh, interesting because it really taught me, I think, first, how connected we are as human beings in terms of what we all like and what we care about. There's just a lot of commonality between people. And then second, how, I guess, how fortunate we are, I would say, to be in the U.S. and and to have the opportunities we do, because I've seen some things that are very, very different. And I do try occasionally, maybe once a week to remember all of that. And even if I'm lost in my Silicon Valley life, to remember what I saw and to remember how, how lucky I am. And so I, 
and I also saw a lot of, we, we ended up, uh, you know, being buffeted about by the tides of history, if you will, the waves of history. And, you know, we would get to a place and a war would start and there was nothing we could do as individuals. We were caught in these systems where there would be a war or a revolution and it would cause major chaos in everyone's lives. Good people's lives would be completely disrupted. And my parents basically lost everything at 40 and had to start over. So when I finally, when we, we first got out of Iran with basically, my mom had kind of saved us because she had um, decided to buy a house in the US. My mom was, was Chinese originally. My dad is Iranian originally and they, they met at Georgetown. And then they went overseas for this life, you know, and my mom had already always loved the DC area and had bought a house in a very good public school district. And because she did that, when we got out with like a couple of suitcases, we had a house in it and we had nothing in the house, but we had a really good school district. And, and for us, it was all about education, trying to better ourselves. And they were able to bounce back because they had good education. So like for us, it was all about, you know, studying and make, making it work through education and and. So I, I think I learned a lot about also about on the one hand, what happens to good individuals and systems that are overwhelming. On the other hand, trying to prepare yourself as best you can for these unforeseen circumstances. You know, how do you how do you grapple with the circumstance? Do you have any control over your destiny? And, and I, I've always tried to to try to that's been a big theme in my life. So I think that's kind of one big way how it, how it's affected me. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story. And especially when you say, you know, your, your parents had lost everything. They came over here and education being so important. It was all about you, right? I'm not sure if you have siblings, but making sure that you got that education. Was that that sacrifice and, and knowing that now, did you understand that at that time that this was were really making- for you? I think I did because I saw them working so hard and I saw them being, they were so upset because there were so many bad things happening to back in Iran to people we knew Mm. that I think they had the additional emotional layer that they were trying to kind of protect us from my sister and me. So there was that you could see them straining to protect us from that while working super hard to kind of recreate economically a life for us. So I was pretty aware of that and my mom would get home pretty late and cook dinner. She, she was working and she was cooking dinner for us. And my dad was kind of stuck. Well, let me just put it this way. It was a difficult situation. Let's put it that way. So I saw them working really hard and I was aware of the sacrifice and I will forever remain very grateful to them for that. You know, I think it's, we knew it was for us. We knew it was for us. And we knew that doing well in school was the only thing that was really being asked of us. And I think it really made me want to be financially independent as well. So that became, we were, I was very aware of that at a very early age, the lack of finances, the lack of money and the, and, and wanting to be financially independent. So, yeah. Well, it obviously was a, a big factor and you did do well. You ended up going to Stanford, right? Business school and Williams and great colleges and where you really were able to get, a, I'm sure, an incredible education. And what's interesting is that you came out and did you become an entrepreneur 
right off the bat or did you work for a big corporation first? What was your mindset like at that point? Yeah, well, so nobody in the family was a business person at all. And so my mom's side were all artists, my dad and, you know, mostly, yeah, I would say artists and designers. And my dad's side were doctors, government, political science, economics. So I didn't think of business as a career at all. But when I got to Williams, I was, I took political economy and all my classmates were interviewing for these jobs called management consulting and investment <laughs> banking. So I learned a ton from my, my classmates actually. Uh, who were all mostly in my polyac major, I think were all boys, actually, they were all guys. And so I just hung out with them and I got all this information. They said, you should, you know, Mary, you should really go for these interviews. And so I, my first job was actually at Goldman Sachs and I learned a lot at Goldman. And then from there, I went back to business school. And then from there, I know this sounds a little bit crazy, but I was the only person in the class of 98 from Stanford Business School to start a company right out of business school. I know that it's unbelievable now, but that is true. <laughs> and that's amazing because now it's probably the exact opposite, which yeah. back then, when you think about it and, and myself as an entrepreneur in the 90s, it really wasn't looked upon as like, you know, it was more what management consulting firm are you going to, what big bank are you going to go work for? And that's really impressive. And especially for you as, as a woman where at those times it was much more difficult and I know at around that time, you decided to start a business. Can you tell us about that business and, and what made you just go for it? Sure. So I had worked in banking and seen a lot of client companies, worked in consulting and seen a lot of client companies and started to understand the patterns of business really started clicking for me before business school. But I also thought, I'm not sure it's going to suit either my personality or, or who I am to work up my way up inside, inside a corporation. So I don't really want to take a job after business school. I'd rather take my chances on this massive, awesome American consumer market, or maybe I can make a product that people want to buy. And if they want to buy it, it's not going to be about me and what I, you know, that, that I'm a woman and, you know, I'm a minority woman, et cetera. It's going to be about the product and whether they like it or not, it'll be the truest test of whether I succeeded or not. And very, very objective. So I really like that. I really, I think we're very lucky in the U S to have this huge Petri dish of like 300 million plus people to, and that's why probably we're very good marketers in the U S because we have all these people to market to, but anyway, so that that's why I decided to, to start something right at a school. I had this wonderful friend in New York who I lived with in New York, who we were both investment banking analysts. So I called her up and I said, could you please leave McKinsey where she was at the time, <laughs> leave your husband, leave McKinsey come sleep on my couch in San Francisco and let's start a business together. Cause this is where you know, we can raise a lot of capital right now for an e-commerce, like a, an internet business. And she said, sure, but I really want to start. I have this idea and I really would do it for this idea. And her idea was to start, her name's Varsha. Her idea was to start a cosmetics company online. And I said, okay, you know, I was going to do more of this like online survey company, kind of like survey monkey, but you know, let's just do your, you know, like, let's just do your idea. It was my first shot at, getting the right person on the bus. And then we're going to decide where the bus is going to go. That, that phrase people use, that was really what we did. We said, I said, I want to work with her. And if her idea is what she wants to do, let's do it. Let's go work on her idea. And that's why we started Eve.com, which and was the I, first I love, company online. And I, I love that, what you said about the getting the right person first, because you can have the most incredible idea with the wrong person. And you've seen it multiple times, it not work out, but you knew you had the right person. And I love your idea, like pre-survey mug at that obviously worked really well too, but you went into this business 
it was right prior, I think, to the bubble and and everything. And just take me out of of Eve and ending up selling it. And then let's talk about minted. Sure. Yeah. So Eve was a very uh, fast experience. We raised twenty six million dollars in one year. We launched it. It was immediately at the like one of the top e-commerce sites on the web at the time. Within a year, the first year, we did ten million dollars of sales, which wow. for ninety eight was a lot. Even now, it would be a lot, I think, for a consumer business. Well, people for- people didn't even want to spend like they were scared to spend money online. They thought yeah. you know people are going to steal their credit card. That's right. It was such an educational selling process to the consumer and the supplier, all the cosmetics companies. We had to convince them we were reputable. But so essentially we rocketed very, very fast. We kept being approached to sell the company, even though we had only just launched. And then we sold the company in April, 2000, right before the entire bubble burst and everything became Mm. valueless. We sold it for about 110 million in cash. Now, just to be very clear to your listeners, I did not, that was not all mine. I was heavily diluted at that point already because I had raised so much money, but still it was enough to, we paid off the debt, student debt. My husband and I paid off our debt. We were able to pick and choose what we wanted to do next. We were in a good position. So that was a good, and then I went, I then went and worked for a number of larger companies. Cause I thought, gosh, I started this company. I had to, I grew from zero to 120 employees in six months. And I had no idea what I was doing at all. And I I needed to understand how to make a business profitable and how to manage people, how to create org structures. And I felt that it would be better to do that at a bigger company. So I did that for a while. And I had my first child also, which was fantastic. (laughs) My son, Alex. And then after a while, I, after four years at the Body Shop International, where I had launched and grown their e-commerce business, I started thinking, wow, I'm seeing some really big signs of consumer shift happening. And I'm really curious that consumers are now choosing to buy from people they've never heard of before. That is really interesting. And they're choosing to read blog posts from people they've never heard of before. There's something very different happening and a shift going on. And I was thinking, oh, well, if there's all this probably hidden talent out there, maybe consumers are willing to buy from these people now. We should try to surface that talent, help a lot of people make a living and get that talent to consumers somehow. And I was thinking about crowdsourcing at that point. And that's when I left and I decided to jump into Minted. More from our guests, but first a word from our sponsors. While some things seem to happen in the blink of an eye, like volatility and inflation in the markets, other things take time, like building a successful startup or perhaps creating a great piece of art. I'm no artist myself, but it could be foolish not to recognize the existence of art as an asset class. Billionaires have been investing in the art market for centuries, while some of us have been sticking to the classic 60-40 equities and bonds ratio. But get this, there's finally a way to get access to the investment of the ultra high net worth investor without being one. With the $1 billion FinTech startup, Masterworks. Using data and technology, Masterworks is democratizing the art market. They're transforming a centuries-old asset class so that everyday investors can invest in blue-chip pieces from iconic artists like Warhol, Picasso, and Basquiat to their portfolios. The best part? It only takes a moment to invest in blue-chip artwork on their platform. 
You can get started at masterworks.io slash HSH. My listeners even get priority access to their latest offerings. Just go to masterworks.io slash HSH. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And our next sponsor. Take your business online with Wix, the leading website creation platform that's got all the tools you need to create, manage, and grow your brand. Whether you're starting your online business or you've got a side hustle, you can design a site to showcase your brand that'll look great on any device. Join over 200 million people already using Wix's wide range of solutions to enhance their businesses, like ultra-smart SEO tools designed to get you found on search engines, faster loading times to create outstanding user experiences, and payment solutions to help you boost your revenue. Plus, with enterprise-grade security, built into every site, you know you're in safe hands. You can manage everything from one dashboard on desktop and mobile, so you can be available anywhere at any time, in the office, at home, or on the go. Want to get started? Head over to Wix.com today and create your website today. And we're back. Talk about Minted and who Minted is for, because I'm very curious if this played into your mother and her being an artist and, and tell us about Minted and, and why you chose to go into that area. Yeah. Well, I, I won't lie. I love design. I love art. I love, I do have an aesthetic. I love looking at beautiful things, I will say. And that's another thing I I got to see a lot of really cool architecture. I think by accident growing up in all these places, I saw a lot of interesting art and crafts. And I think I subconsciously was exposed to a lot. And so um, when I would get together at family get togethers, because I was the only business person there, my mom's side of the family would say, you know, you know, like I haven't, I have an idea for these napkins. This, I'm going to put my art on a napkin and I'm going to sell these napkins. And this would be, let's say, a family member who actually was a, is a pretty well-recognized modern artist. And I felt very protective. I'll just say my instinct was being very protective. Like, let me help you through this business thing. I Almost like an agent. I almost felt like I was an agent, if you will. And I've always felt like, gosh, it's so courageous of artists to put their, I could see my family members putting themselves out there. You're revealing something about yourself to the whole world that is very intimate when I think when you're an artist. And I have huge respect for that courage. And I felt like it'd be really interesting to get to know artists, form communities, help them get feedback from each other like they would be in art school again, and then and help them get be a market maker, explain what the market wants, see what they want to do, and somehow put them together for those who wanted to earn money. And it, it really was rooted in this family experience of saying, I need to help I need to help them figure out how they can actually bring their vision to market. How can I help them earn a living? I love that. Number one, because my brother is an artist and definitely, and I say this with all the love, he is an artist, but from the business side, that's not his thing. And when you talked about being an agent for these people, because there is so much talent out there and there's so many people. And that's why with the entire crowdsourcing idea, And now what's happened in so many different areas, it's become such a success because there is so much great talent out there. And when you had started the business, was there any hesitation? Were you worried that it might not work? How did that go? 
Well, it went very differently from when I started Eve. When I started Eve, I opened up the doors and the makeup. Imagine a warehouse of makeup and just the cosmetics flying off the shelf. It was really start like I almost got used to that 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 that's that that is how things should happen. So when we first opened the doors at Minted, there was no demand at all. Nobody nobody was interested in buying from us and it was really scary and I thought I'd have to shut the company down. But it turned out I was I had sort of inadequate data and that what really was happening was there was not enough traffic hitting the site to actually and not enough product for sale that was crowdsourced to actually draw a conclude an adequate conclusion. So we only had something like 60 designs that we had crowdsourced and we had signed up. It's a long story, but we had signed up a lot of other product from known artists, from known stationary designers and put that on the site. And that was not selling at all. So we had the, we just had an, an like the, the, the wrong mix of product and not enough traffic, but basically we had no sales and we we're running out of cash fast. And so we had to completely really pivot and move completely. First, we had to go raise venture capital on numbers that didn't look very good. And number two, we had to, well, we had to raise money somehow to extend our runway and then on numbers that didn't look good. And then we, we also completely pivoted around crowdsourced content, which we weren't 100% offering at the beginning. So we evolved the product, we optimized and we changed it a lot to make Minted happen, but we almost gave it up completely. We almost shut the company down. How did that make you feel, even though you had been successful you know, with Eve and starting this business, and especially it was a mission business, right? Was that a hard time for you, especially going to raise money when you know you didn't even know if it was going to do well? What, what was that feeling like? It's incredibly humbling and it, uh, you're only as good as the last business you started in some ways. <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of how I felt. And I still feel, I had to really dig down deep and say, look, you're, you love entrepreneurship. You love starting companies and you don't have to care what other people think about you. So you really have to give up ego if you're going to be successful at this. And I've, I've said this to myself in 1998 as a student, repeating it to myself. And then I had to do it again in 2007. You don't care what other people think about you. You have to be that way in order to be, you know, in order to stay true. And you, you have to have internal strength because you're going to get rejected so many times. So you, it, this process is extraordinarily lonely and painful to start another business each time you do it. And I feel like you have to really have internal strength and conviction and, and really have to not care if you look like a, like a fool or not. You just have to not care. I know. So that, that helps me a lot. It's so hard. And I, I certainly understand what you're saying, being an entrepreneur myself with a few businesses over the years. And even with success, it's still, okay, the third one I'm on now, if this fails and, and having to be able to be like, it doesn't matter what others think I'm doing this, just being able to do it is a success or to try, but it's such a hard, difficult thing. And especially in a situation you're raising money, you're bringing in money, you want to be successful for those people. So yes. I, I certainly understand that. And I, I want to talk because I really started to learn about your story a lot more where you've recently were chosen by American Express for a series that they do called Business Class. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the series and, and why you wanted to get involved. Yeah, I love the fact that that the series is talking to not just the entrepreneurs who want to go raise millions and millions of dollars via venture capital, but also the entrepreneurs who are raising from friends and family. 
or maybe raising bank, you know, getting bank debt, bank loans to start their businesses. So they're, they're talking to a very broad audience. And I like, I want to support entrepreneurship. I think like the series does across all entrepreneurs and in very, in very, very inclusively and not just tech entrepreneurs. I'm sure that there are people watching who are starting, uh, you know, restaurants or starting bakeries, starting um, smaller businesses that are not tech oriented. So I think there's probably a huge range which is, I think, really compelling to try to, and especially our episode that we worked on, strategy, or to talk a little, a little bit about strategy with a very broad audience. Can you share a little bit of, of your strategy and what that's like? Thinking about the pandemic, thinking about not just focusing on the, the folks graduating Stanford going for these moonshot ideas, but like you said, for the business owner, the restaurant owner who's starting a new restaurant now, or might be someone starting a, a small business. What was your thoughts on strategy? Yeah. And before I say that, I forgot to mention to you that I also wanted to, to work with American Express because honestly, American Express is the first company to give me a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get a credit card from a lot of, I, I, so it was my first credit card. And I really, actually really, really loved the, the experience. So just wanted to mention that, but. You know, it's um, funny you said that because that was my first credit card. And now getting older, what I hate is seeing like members since like 1990. Be like one or two. I'm gonna uh, talk to yeah. them, see if they can raise that. Or maybe you want to raise it? I know mine is the same, is same, exactly the same way. I think I'm a member since '92. Yeah. Really getting depressing when I look at them. <laughs> but they have been amazing. So. Yes, same here, same here. So that's one one other reason is I like to work with brands that I that I, you know that I admire. Yeah. So I think in terms of strategy, I think of strategy as a plan that allows you to define your position in the market and the strategy, some component of it, in my opinion, should be very, should be so carefully thought out that should be very long-term. There's got to be a component that's really evergreen and that you're not changing all the time. For example, I mentioned it might be, what is the basic value proposition for our consumer? Now, if it changes every single year, it's really hard to execute against the strategy long-term. But our, ours was, uh, we want to make you feel unique. We want to bring, you know, everybody wants to feel unique and we're going to help you achieve your unique, your uniqueness as an individual when you buy our product. So we thought about that and that has actually remained true all the way through the past 15 years. We haven't been changing that every, every uh, year. And, and to, to achieve that uniqueness, we, and just giving you an example of a structure, we think about three things, you know, unique design from independent artists made with quality. That's number two. And that is fully customizable by you. And so we have a design-led proposition. And that means when we're making choices within the company between you know, spending on X or spending on Y or having a, a policy, we'll make a design-friendly decision where we can always put design first because that's why we exist design, quality of design. So that's just an example. So when we think about, when I think about strategy, I think about abstracting it enough that it, sh it shouldn't be changing all the time. But on the other hand, there's also an annual, an annual part of it or a, a more, a more frequently changing part that's allowing you to adapt to the market. But generally I think about strategy being something that allows you to position yourself in a market and build moats and unique competitive advantage. That's how I, how I think about the strategy. And what about thinking about I'm not sure if you touched on this and people can obviously are going to go listen to the episode, but strategy for today, we don't know. And I've asked this question and I'll ask you to almost every entrepreneur I've had on this show, what is the office going to look like? Where are we going with 
work from home or, or work from the office. How do you plan a strategy now? I, I mean, it's different for restaurants and serve, a lot of service businesses in that realm, but is there a way that you can strategize or think about that? It's so difficult to predict the future, but I, I do think there's been a fundamental shift in expectations, at least that will probably affect a whole generation of people. Now, not to say that in the next generation or two or three generations, things don't change back again, but probably for this generation of young worker, like in, in people entering the workforce and then like kind of achieve, like getting, getting into the middle of their, of their work history. It seems like people have expectations to now have more flexibility, both locationally, as well as like, uh, you know, just time spent in office. And I don't see that shifting away that quickly, shifting back very quickly. On the other hand, as a business owner, I find it a little bit difficult to actually coordinate and particularly brainstorm, like, especially Mm. if you're starting a new company, getting those night, those, those relationships to form, getting the culture to form. I think it's a little bit, I think it's a lot harder actually when you're doing it remotely to form those bonds. And so I I can only answer personally right now to say that I would imagine that a hybrid model makes the company most successful, where on the one hand, you can acknowledge that your workers, your your employees want something different nowadays and are going to demand something different. And on the other hand, you're trying to make the company actually work, especially if it's a new new venture where you have to form new relationships, create products that are are going to have to be brainstormed together and collaborated on together as a group. I would bet that if you're dealing with a mature product or a company where people have already formed a lot of relationships and there are a lot of not a lot of not, not a lot of new people coming into the system, that this is a little bit less challenging. But think also about one thing that concerns me a little bit is if you're 22, 23, you're entering the workforce, and you and I remember one of the most fun things. Entering the workforce, having fun with your colleagues, going to the office, making friends. Sometimes you'd socialize on the weekends. It was like a fantastic time to be in your 20s, have relatively few obligations and just meet a lot of people. It was just so much fun and so integral to the learning experience, you know? It's so important. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that I had actually started a new business during the pandemic called Amaze Media Labs. And we create podcasts for businesses, companies. And I just, we probably have about 20 employees. I we had a, a meeting in Vegas just with all of us. It was the first time I met 10 or 12, you know, some like I'd met more than half I had not met over a year. And it's just very different. And the thing you said, because we have a lot of younger folk, I was thinking they went right from college to sitting in their parents' house on their computer. And like you said, for me and you, the best thing ever, I remember my first job at Lehman Brothers was, where are we going for drinks after, you know, like, and then like, you know, bitching about the boss and like, you know, like anything it was, but, but that's such an important element for the younger folk. And that's what I'm so curious if the hybrid model can really change that. And everyone likes to work from home when, you know, it's a snow day. Well, you're in San Francisco, but here in, in New York or something along <laughs> yeah, those lines. Yeah. So, but I, I totally, totally understand what you're saying. And what do you think, you know, with this, this great resignation and mm-hmm. has that been, have you seen a change in, in minted and people saying, you know what, I'm going to go sell my art. I'm going to go do this. Have you seen the statistics change on people jumping in as small business entrepreneurs? 
I think that entrepreneurship is is really popular focus right now. I've seen it at Stanford Business School where I get involved and I'm an alum and I get involved and I see a large a large percentage of the class second years this year being very, very interested in starting their own businesses. So very high percentage. So that's really been interesting to me because I've spoken in a class there for many, many years, and I've never seen a higher percentage of people raise their hands and say, yep, I'm starting a business after school. So that's one data so point. So great. I do think that I've seen a lot of people moving, a lot of people moving locations, particularly San Francisco is very expensive. Mm. So I've seen a lot of people say, look, I could earn more essentially proportionately to my cost of living if I take take the job and then I go, I go live somewhere else like Portland, for example, Oregon sure. or you know, other places. And so I've seen a lot of that, Colorado, Oregon, people moving, but keep trying to trying to keep their job. So I've seen a lot of more, a little bit of lifestyle, I would call it lifestyle modification more even than shifting to entrepreneurship. Although I've seen a lot of people also interested in entrepreneurship. So I also think that that the pandemic gave people pause to think about what they were actually doing. And so some people have shifted just into a different direction, you know, still taking a job with a company, but maybe shifting to a different area because it something about the pandemic made them think about what they were really interested in. Yeah. I think all that time at home and in isolation to a certain degree and thinking about your life and what -hmm. you really want. And I, I hope that's some of the positives that come out of this. And one of the positives too, that I will say with our business is that the other business I've had in the past, we're based in New York. We had bricks and mortar offices and, and now we've got more employees outside of New York in, in, Canada, in Miami, in Boston, in California, you never, starting a business, you never would have been able, or I never would have done that prior to the pandemic. No one knew how to use me. And I I think that's going to be such a positive, but again, also like to your point, very difficult to keep building that culture and, and, and have people really interact in those personal meetings. Yeah, exactly. And I think as you're talking that companies where there is more newness happening, meaning more new products being formed, or it's a new business entirely being formed, or there's a huge influx of new employees. I think those are the ones that might, maybe it's that you lean a little bit more in office and then you're hybrid in general, but maybe you have to lean a little bit more in versus the ones where there's a lot of like, you can imagine a partnership of three people who've been working together for 15 years already that that model maybe might be more successfully ported to entirely remote. So I think that the change factor, the question is, I think how much an organization can absorb change remotely might be one way to frame what decision you might make as a, as a business owner. And then of course, for if I were in my twenties, I'd say, I'd probably recommend raising, like I'd raise my hand and say, I'll be in the office because I want to meet people. Mm. I want career guidance. I want to soak knowledge up from as many people as possible. And I'd probably raise my hand and say, if you want someone to be in the office, I'll go in because I want to meet, I want to increase my network, soak up as much information as possible from, from mentors and let me have it. (laughs) So I'd, I'd say those are the two things that I'm thinking about as you're talking. Such such a great point. And in, in a little time we have left, I, I do want to ask you, you're now in San Francisco, you've been extremely successful, all because, or not all, but but obviously your parents laid that foundation. Now you have a son or you have children. And yep. do you ever think like the difference between your parents' lives, your lives, and their lives? And 
And how do you keep them grounded and focused and not to play psychiatrist here, but like- oh, it's such a great <laughs> question. It's such a great question. Something I think about at least on weekends all the time. So when I have a moment to think about it, yeah, I think a lot about the fact that as an immigrant, I will never be able to take my experience and port it into the brains of my children. There is no way that, that this can be done really. And no way that I can take that sort of like deep economic motivation, I would call it, and, and put it into them when they are better off as, you know, in their, in their childhoods than I was financially, that is. I think that the best I can do is link them back to history so that they can at least hear the history. And mm. so what I try to do, I spend, my parents spend a lot of time with us. They come over a lot and they bring a different perspective generationally. They introduce different values. They, they, they remind all of us of a bygone era and that is the best thing I can do is just connect my kids with the past past. That's what I think I, we, I can do as parents. So the grandparents have become a big part of the kids' lives, our kids' lives. They talk about all these experiences they have, just they feel like centuries away. And then we have celebrations. You know, I think celebrating your history once in a while is really important, no matter what your history is. And, you know, at Chinese New Year, we're going to have a family dinner and we're going to get out the re remainder of my grandmother's like wedding ch China from China, the wedding China from China. We'll get it out <laughs> and we'll use that and we'll talk and we'll, we'll make family recipes and we'll talk a little bit about the past just so the kids can get a, a little bit exposed to it. So we'll do things like that, that I think are meaningful. Um, and that's, I think, trying to connect the kids with their roots and where we've all come from. What happened to get here is the best we can do. Yeah, that's such great point that you bring up and you'll never be able to really ingrain that. And I think that with my own children and their grandparents being immigrants and just where they fortunately ended up and where they are now. And it's also interesting too, because of all the generations and what's important to new generations, as opposed to maybe what was important to our mm -hmm. parents' generation, which it was, I need to survive, right? I need, I need to feed you and clothe you and have a, a house. And there's a lot you said at the beginning, you know, what this country offers in terms of opportunity. And especially someone like yourself who saw so many different places, it really is such an incredible thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you're inspiring so many entrepreneurs. And I want to leave you just with the, the last question being, if you were now back in your 20s, early 20s, and, and thinking about what you were going to do, what advice would you give your younger self right now in terms of ideas or opportunities with all these things going on? Where do you think you would focus? Okay. Well, I would first say that I would look for an industry that is rising and is large because that, that will float all boats in, involved in that industry. I would pick the industry you're going to get into the area very carefully and pick one that is growing because you could be an incredibly hard worker and incredibly smart, but if you're stuck in an industry that's shrinking or stagnant, it's going to be an uphill battle for you. And then the second thing I would say is even though and this is going to sound very biased, but technology is truly changing absolutely every industry, whether it's trucking, whether it's automotive, or whether it's financial services, it's changing everything. It doesn't mean you have to be a technologist. Though. So don't worry. If you don't like the idea of coding, you don't have to be a coder, but it's going to change your career, even if you're an artist. So you might as well 
take a little bit of a class in, you know, even if it's a survey class to understand the basics and how that might affect your industry. And then I would say, take that knowledge and think about how it might affect your participation in that industry. Like if you're an artist, might you look at understanding, you know, NFTs right now? It's kind of interesting what's happening. Digital art and NFTs are very interesting. And I know in New York and LA, there's a lot of activity around that. You don't have to be a coder. You don't, not everybody has to, but I would really look at how tech is going to impact your future. I think that's such a great point. Regardless, you have to understand that with any business and just really understanding and not understanding you don't have to be a program, but understanding that it will affect businesses. And I guess before I leave you, tell us just in terms of American Express business class and the series and is that where can people find it? Where can people tune in? What's the best way so they could hear? There's a lot of other great entrepreneurs they have on there like yourself, but to just listen to your strategy session, where's the best way for them to tune in? Well, the best place is to go go to the site, which um, American Business American Express Business Class, uh, the, the site, which I think, will we link it in? I don't know if, if there's a link on the podcast, but that's probably the best place to go watch it. We could offer in our our writing, and then I'm sure if someone Googles American Express Business Class series, they'll be able to. Yeah, exactly. So I think that they've got fantastic guests on the site, all focused each episode on a slightly different aspect of running a business. Ours happens to be business strategy, but you'll also see case studies of real entrepreneurs trying to solve solve their problems. And I think I think it's a great resource to actually, it's almost like business school where you're going to watch cases of people trying to solve problems. You're in a sense, if you watch the series, you're kind of almost going to business school without the tuition. You're going and learning, you're seeing case studies and how you might, you can think about how might I solve this problem that someone is facing. Yeah, such a great thing, especially like you said, all these hands raising now at school, wanting to be entrepreneurs and giving us this opportunity. I say that with my podcast, this is definitely on a 115th episode has been my business school, which is I'm so fortunate and grateful. And I learned so much from you today and I wish you the best success with Minted. And of course, I'm sure all the other endeavors that you become involved with down the road. So thanks for joining us today, Miriam. Thanks. Thanks so much. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine Back in the 1990s, it's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.